He is risen. Oh, come on. He is risen. He is risen yeah, that's a little bit better. Let me pray to start out this message, Lord. Uh, I need you just as desperately during this service as the previous one. I need you to fill me afresh, Lord, that you would use me as a tool to bring forth your precious word, that you would uh, cause your word to go out and bear fruit in the lives of the people that are listening. And God, do this for your glory. Do it for our joy. Do it for uh, eternal purposes that we can't even understand, but we trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a dark, confusing time. The dark, confusing time between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. It was a time where people had lost hope. It was a time where people probably questioned their faith in Jesus. It was a time when it looked like the enemy had won. Kind of like today, isn't it? And what we have is there was a lady named Mary Magdalene who was very frustrated. She was hopeless at that time because she was seeking a dead Lord, not an omnipotent, sovereign, living Lord. Jesus was dead. She expected to find Jesus' corpse. That's what she was looking for. Jesus had been crucified. He had been buried, and they were going back to finish the burial customs. And she was looking for his corpse. And she was weeping. She thought that somebody robbed the grave. She thought that evil had triumphed. That's what Mary was thinking that morning. And her faith was weak. And her eyes were blind. She didn't see the hope that was right in front of her. Take a look at God's word. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 16, or 9 through 16. As yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she, stopped, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You know, so many times we suffer needless sorrow and worry and anxiety because we forget God is sovereign. 
we forget that evil men can't thwart God's eternal purposes. Do you believe that? We forget that. And what we need to do is we need to take a look at this account and realize that like Mary, the fact of Jesus' bodily resurrection can produce life-changing hope in you today at this moment, regardless of what it looks like outside. Regardless. Now, when we talk about the resurrection, we need to understand that the resurrection didn't add anything to Jesus' predetermined, willing sacrifice on the cross to ransom redeemed sinners. doesn't add anything. Take a look at God's Word. Acts chapter 4, 27 through 28. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The crucifixion was not an act of men, it was an act of God. He had predetermined from before the foundations of the world that Jesus was going to go to the cross and he was going to die for the sins of his people. It was predetermined. And then we look at Luke chapter 24, 46 through 47. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. It wasn't only his death, but his resurrection. It was right there. Jesus had told them about it, but they didn't put it together. And then finally, Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I, I, I go through this every fri- Good Friday. I spend some time between 2 and 3 just meditating on the cost that Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. It overwhelms me. And I can't get my head around it. But I realize, I come to the point where I realize Jesus did that with joy. Jesus went and paid the penalty for your sin with joy. Think of that. You know, you, you start becoming overwhelmed with the volume and, and, and not understanding the wrath of God being poured out, and yet Jesus did it with joy for you. That is amazing. And it's despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Absolutely amazing. Jesus' death purchased the acquittal, the justification, just as if you had never sinned and forgiveness for all who would repent. We were separated from God. We had no hope. As it says, you know, we we see in Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know how many sins you have to commit in order to be separated from God for all eternity? One. You lie once. You steal a penny. Because now you have not lived the perfect life without sin. And God is perfect. He is holy. He is in heaven. And you can only be in, in heaven with the Father if somehow you, would be per- you were able to perfectly live. But that's not possible. It's not possible. So what God did in his love and in his justice is he sent Jesus. Jesus came and did something that was required that you and I can't do. He lived the perfect sinless life. He met the requirements of the law. 
We couldn't. And he lived life perfectly and thought word he never sinned. And yet he goes to the cross and he is punished. The wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God was poured out on him for all who would believe and receive the gift of salvation. The wrath of God was just because sin deserves punishment. And it's loving because God sent his son and took care of the problem. You see, it's not about your good deeds outweighing your bad because there's a problem. You still have the sin in your life. If you're depending on your good deeds outweighing your bad, here's your argument. Your argument is basically this. You've committed murder and you're standing before a judge and you said, Judge, I'm 35 years old. I only had one bad day. Look the other way. No, the judge has got to be just. And so, hoping your good deeds outweigh your bad, you never deal with the bad deeds, the sin. And that's what Christ came to do. It's not a matter of your good deeds outweighing your bad. It's about Jesus coming, living the perfect sinless life, meeting the requirements that God has. And what happens is, is Jesus met that. And when we, by God's grace, which is something we get when, that we do not deserve, through faith, believing in what we do not see, I've never seen Christ, but I know he is there. I know he died on the cross. In Jesus alone, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. When we, by God's grace, embrace that truth and are not looking at our good deeds outweighing our bad, this thing happens. It's just absolutely amazing. We call it here the great exchange. Jesus lived this perfect, sinless life that was required to spend eternity in heaven. And when we receive the gift of salvation, God considers as if Jesus' life that he lived was ours. Imputed to us. And our sin, which Jesus did not commit, is imputed to him, and he pays the penalty for it. It's the great exchange. And so now we meet the requirements of heaven, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And that's the cross. That's what Jesus did. We receive that gift of salvation. And if you're still hoping that your good deeds will outweigh your bad and that's the reason why you'll go to heaven, I'm here to tell you, you won't be going to heaven because that's not what the Bible says. But you can receive this gift of salvation by repenting, saying, God, I'm guilty. I have sinned and I'm separated from you according to the Bible. And God, I have no hope outside of Jesus. Would you forgive me? And would you be the savior of my life? And you receive that by just asking God, by just asking him. And maybe today, hopefully, I would say this. If you don't know Christ, receive that gift of salvation even at this moment. Receive that gift of salvation. That Easter Sunday would always mark the day when you came to know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior and your eternity was secure because of what Christ did. Let me, let me pray a moment here. Lord, God, if there's any that are within the sound of my voice that are lost today and you have just convicted them, would you please, Lord, bring them to a place of repentance? Lord, they're guilty before you and I pray that right now we just confess that, Lord, I'm a sinner separated from you and I ask that you would forgive me, Lord, that you would be my Lord and my Savior. Help me to walk in a way that honors you. Amen. Amen.
So the resurrection didn't add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. But what the resurrection did was it was the Father's proclamation that Jesus' substitutionary, sacrificial death was acceptable payment for all who would believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. It means that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your debt is paid in full. Jesus paid all the penalty for your sin, past, present, and future. It's all paid. And the resurrection is evidence that God accepted that payment on your behalf that Jesus made. And that's what we see in the resurrection. The resurrection happened on a unique day in history. Did you know that? It was called the 17th of Nisan. 17th of Nisan. It was a, a day where they were celebrating. Every year they were to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. Remember we talked about last time that Passover was instituted when they came out of the land of Egypt after the 10th plague and it was the Passover? Well, Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits and what that was, was that was the first time that Israel ate the fruit from the Promised Land. Remember they were wandering in the desert for 40 years and there was always manna every day? Well, the manna was cut off. And now they were going to eat the fruit from the promised land. And that was the day of first fruits. That was when they were supposed to celebrate that. It was pointing to Christ. 1,400 years before the resurrection. Take a look at God's word. Leviticus 23, 10 through 11 and 14. When you come to the land that I give, give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. The sheaf is kind of like a banquet, uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, just, just a, a bouquet of flowers. And it's, it's like they took some of the wheat and they go, the priest would bring it to the priest, and the priest would wave it. That's what he's talking about here, whatever that crop was. So that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day until you have brought the offering of your, of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You're always supposed to do this. You're always supposed to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits on the same day every year. 1,400 years before Christ rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, God said do this every year. Remember when we were talking about how Passover was this biblical typology? It was a pro prophetic thing that was pointing to Christ. First fruits was the same thing. It's amazing. It's amazing what God was doing. Do you know there were other incredible events in the Bible that happened on this specific day? Again, God taking all of history and moving it. Let me give you one of them. Do you remember a thing called Noah's Ark? It landed on Mount Ararat on this very same day. On the very same day. There was, uh, this was 2,500 years before the resurrection when it landed on Mount Ararat. Another thing that happened on this specific day of the Jewish calendar year. Through Esther, God delivered the Jews from genocide. On this day. On, a, on this day, Hezekiah cleansed the temple. And what they're 
fairly sure of, but they can't be absolutely 100% positive of, is these two events as well. The parting of the Red Sea. Isn't that cool? And this was probably the day that the angel told Joshua how Jericho was going to fall. See what God was doing? He was signaling ahead of time. Something incredible is going to happen. There's going to be a freedom that's going to happen. It's going to happen on this day in this Jewish calendar year. The Feast of First Fruits was in thanks for a crop that was about to come. So they would take that first crop and they would cut some of it away and they'd bring it to the priest and the priest would take that and he'd wave it and it was in thanks to God saying, thank you God for what you're about to provide. They were praising God's faithfulness to honor his word to fulfill and provide everything they needed in the future. You see how this ties together with Christ's resurrection? Take a look at God's word again. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, the harvest. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Part of that harvest as, as God calls us. And Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. The first fruit, the firstborn. You see how they're tied together? He's the first to be raised from the dead. And finally, Romans 6, 9-10, And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, Jesus was the very first to physically raise from the dead, never to die again. Because we read about all these, these near-death experiences or death experiences, they all die again. And if they've had one and they haven't died yet, they will. Jesus was the very first that he died and he rose again, never to die again. The first fruits of something. He's the first fruit of the resurrected new body that we will receive when he comes. He's the first of many. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof that he is Messiah and Savior. It is proof that he is Messiah and Savior. And the resurrection guarantees that all of God's promises that he made for you for the future will be fulfilled. The resurrection is that proof that it will happen. All the promises that you're resting in, that you're hoping in today, in the future, will happen because of the resurrection. What are some of those promises? That Jesus is coming back again. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, how could we know he'd ever come back? Take a look at God's word. Acts 1, 9 through 11. As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I'm guessing I would have done the same thing, right? <laughs> what? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming again. Acts 17, 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do we know Jesus is coming back again? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. How do we know that there's going to be a time where the world will be judged? Because God raised him from the dead. That's the evidence. That's what Scripture is saying. We know this. We're assured of those things. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. You see, the resurrection guarantees these promises that God has made will happen. and The resurrection is the evidence. And then we go to 1 Corinthians 2.9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven, the culmination of all of human history, will be Jesus' eternal reign with all believers. How do we know that? Because Christ rose from the dead, brothers and sisters. He's not in the tomb. And the penalty was paid and God accepted it. And Christ was raised and he's saying, now look, all these promises of Christ coming again, Christ ruling and reigning, all of those things are true. And you can know for sure because Jesus rose from the dead. And all the promises that God has made to a believer are true because of the resurrection. It's evidence. The resurrection assures a Christian that you have peace with God today. You know why? Because the, the offering was accepted. Christ's death on the cross was accepted and the resurrection was evidence of that. And he says, you know what? You're at peace with God right now. If you know Jesus, you're not his enemy anymore. You're at peace with God. You know what else that means? It guarantees that you have a new relationship with God. You have a new relationship with God. And because of the resurrection, we know this. We know this. That presently and in the future, the lives that we live, please hear this, are to be envied. Envied. Take a look at God's word. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Listen to that. A living hope, regardless of what's happening in the world around us in our lives, the difficult things that are happening. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's saying, because of the resurrection, that's evidence that all that Christ purchased for you, more importantly, Jesus himself is awaiting for all eternity for you. And your life is to be envied. Your life is to be envied. Look at that. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 25. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see what that's saying, though? It's saying that there's hope in this life. He's saying, but that's not where it ends. It's far greater than that. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. What that tells me is Jesus wins. Right? And it goes on. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ is coming. And because of the resurrection, we know to this very day, this moment, that you are forgiven. You can know without any doubt that you are forgiven for all your sin. You can know that you have power over sin and temptation. You can walk in victory because the Spirit of God dwells within you and greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. So you can know that. You don't have to walk in sin. You can have a hope and a joy in this present life, regardless of what's happening in the world around us. We can look and see. Remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about how the enemy had surrounded the prophet and his servant and all the, all the servant could see was the enemy? I think too many Christians live like that. I think too many Christians live in between the cross and the resurrection. They don't have hope. And like that servant, they only see the enemy all around them. And then Elijah comes out and says, open his eyes. And that's what we're saying today. Open your eyes. Jesus is risen. And that should produce a hope in our lives that, you know what, all those promises are true. Not only for today, but for the future. That you will rise from the dead with a new, perfect, resurrected body. And that you will spend paradise in heaven with Christ where there is no suffering, where there is no sin. In the presence of your precious, beautiful, wonderful Savior who is the treasure of all treasures. Take a look at God's word. Philippians 3. 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. He said, how can that happen? The Scripture says that right now God is holding everything together. And when you get right down to, I think it's the molecular, atomic level, there's positives and negatives, and these things should be repelling, things should be repelling each other, and they're not. How? Because Jesus is holding everything together. He can do what he promises to do. He created everything out of nothing. He can do what he promised right there. And the guarantee that it will happen is he rose from the dead. That's what Scripture says. Look at John 14, 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may, also, may be also. And in Revelation 21, 3 through 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the treasure right there. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so I think if Jesus were here, he would ask you the same question as Mary. He'd say this, he'd say, Why are you weeping? Why are you worried? Why are you anxious? The tomb is empty. I'm risen. Isn't that comforting to hear that? Why are you worrying? Why are you anxious? The tomb is empty. I rose. We live in dark, confusing times. 
it's easy to lose hope. Faith in Jesus is questioned all around where people mock us or maybe you just struggle sometimes because you look and it just seems like the enemy is all around and he is winning. Maybe you're struggling with something physically. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's just reading the headlines. But what we need to do is we need to focus on the victory of Jesus' bodily resurrection to produce hope, life-changing hope today. That it's true. He is risen. And we're children of God adopted never to be let go. That he has made promises and he is faithful and Jesus paid it all. And there is hope and there is joy. And I would say this, that living with joy that is secured and found in Jesus' resurrection is the greatest modern-day evidence and testimony that Jesus really did raise from the dead. We need to live with joy and hope because the world doesn't have it. And we need to live like that because when we live like that, people say, that group of people are different. They're facing the same things that we are. They're reading the same headlines as we are. Why do they have joy? How can they have hope? You see what a testimony it is to the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we, by God's grace, can live like that? That's confusing to the world. But what a testimony to be able to say, yeah, I know everything seems to be coming apart, but I read the end of the book, you know, and I know that God is sure, and he's going to fulfill all his promises because Jesus rose from the dead. And you see, people won't, there's so many people that won't hear all the intellectual, logical arguments about why we know for sure that Jesus rose from the dead. They won't hear it. They'll argue it. But how will they argue your life with joy and peace and hope? can't argue that. And that points to a risen Savior who is your Savior and your friend. So glorify God by proclaiming the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. And live joyfully with the assurance that you do not serve a dead man. You see, that's what the cults do. They serve a dead man. We don't serve a dead man. We serve a living Savior. Amen? I'm going to go a little old school on you. Maybe you'll remember this.
school Carmen with you today, huh? <laughs> Listen, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is alive forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of your glory and your greatness. Lord, that you are a just God who punishes sin, and you are a loving God who provided the sacrifice that we needed. Lord, we worship you this morning that you are risen. You are seated on the right hand of the Father, and your glory fills the temple even now. And Lord, by your kindness, your goodness, your grace, and your mercy, you have called us as your children, and all the promises you made to us are, are true, and all the promises for the future will be fulfilled because Christ is risen and seated on your right hand. So Lord, we praise you today. We worship you and we thank you for all that you have done and will do. And we ask you now, Lord, that you would cause in our hearts just a, such a sweet worship to break forth because you are worthy, Lord, to cause us to worship in spirit and in truth even now as we sing these songs so that your name would be glorified and exalted and magnified. And we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.